WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You're tuned into Exposure, Michigan State's student-run news program here live on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rizal. We've got a few different topics to go over tonight. We'll start off with an update on the legality of hammocking here on MSU campus. From there, we'll go to uh, an inside scoop of the East Lansing rap scene from Impact reporter Brittany Flowers. From there, we'll sit down with Lori Summers, the curator of a new exhibit at the MSU Museum. And uh, after that, we'll have Alternative Spring Breaks, a feature done by Impact reporter Kim Alchatel. Then we also go, uh, get on the phone with Kate Flower, who's the director of the Dylan Fan Club, the Bob Dylan Fan Club, might I add. And we'll finish off the show tonight with a, a senior retrospective piece, uh, sort of a Michigan storyteller, if you will, from station manager Gabriella Saldivia. But first, here's your weekly Impact update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. Exposure will start in just a moment, but first, here's your weekly news update. In entertainment news, the Lansing Symphony Jazz Band will play at the Wharton Center in the next coming week. The band will feature 17 of the finest jazz musicians, playing selections ranging from the classics of the big band era to the most current and exciting contemporary pieces. The concert will take place on Sunday, May 3rd at 7 p.m. Next, we go to Kim Alchatel with an update on a press conference from President Obama. On Thursday, CNN covered the press conference President Barack Obama held in which he took full responsibility for a drone attack. The attack was targeting an al-Qaeda compound but also killed two innocent people, American Warren Wernstein and Italian Giovanni Loporto. The counterterrorism attack also killed high-ranking al-Qaeda operatives Ahmed Farouk and Adam Gadan, who were American citizens. The attack happened in January and is now being fully investigated and declassified. For Impact News, I'm Kim Elchatel. Now, we have Antriana Meredith with devastating news coming out of Nepal. This Saturday, a powerful earthquake shook near the capital of Nepal, killing more than 1,900 people and injuring more than 4,700 people. Century-old buildings and historical landmarks were destroyed while avalanches were set off around Mount Everest. The earthquake not only affected the people of Nepal, but also nearby cities in India. The earthquake was the strongest in the region for more than 80 years, and as government officials try to find a solution, they are still struggling with the aftershocks. With your international news, I am Adriana Meredith. Lastly, we have Quinn Hoffman with the plans for the reconstruction of an East Lansing landmark. The building across the street from Conrad's on Grand River and Abbott has been vacant for quite some time now. Earlier this month, the Lansing State Journal added that building to their top five Lansing area developments to watch. Park District Investment Group has planned a huge development project that includes an eight-story building with retail apartments and 83 hotel rooms. They also plan for another four-story building on Evergreen Avenue, which would include more retail, offices, and apartments, as well as 273 underground parking spaces. Bringing you your Lansing News, I'm Quinn Hoffman. This has been your weekly news update. I've been your anchor, Michaela Harris. Exposure starts right now. You can follow us online at impact underscore exposure on Twitter. We'll start off the show tonight with an interview that we did with Matt Shalino and Marissa Truppiano, the president and vice president, respectively, from the Hammocking Club of MSU, as they give us an update on the current legality of hammocking right here on Michigan State's campus. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rezel, and I'm uh, sitting down today with Matt Shalino and Marissa Truppiano from the Hammocking Club of MSU. How are you guys doing today? Uh, we're good. We're pretty good. And, uh, of course, I, I know that there's uh, some breaking news here with the Hammocking <laughs> Club, but before before we roll into that, uh, let's just start off with a little bit of an introduction from each of you and uh, what you do over at the Hammocking Club. Uh, so my name's Matt. I'm the current president of uh, Hammocking Club. Uh, we're working on big things. Big things are happening in Hammocking Club life. Take it over to Marissa. I'm Marissa. Um, this is my second year as vice president of the Hammocking Club. Um, yeah, pretty All much right. what Matt said. <laughs> so let's. Uh, so Hammocking 
um, here at MSU is, to my understanding, is not allowed on campus, correct? Yeah. Correct. Um, and what, what's kind of the, the background on this issue? How did this all get started? Um, back in 2012, our president and vice president at the time, Justin and Nate, um, they were hammocking and a couple of officials came up to them and said, hey, you guys have to take these down. This is not allowed on campus. We have ordinances against it. Um, so there the hammocking club began kind of almost as like a way to fight the ordinance, I guess. Um, but yeah, so we've been working at it ever since then. So pretty new, but working, taking steps, mm-hmm. taking steps. And uh, so I've I've been following the the Facebook feed uh, on your group that you have on Facebook, and um, I noticed I don't know a couple weeks ago that now it springs here and everyone's you know putting their hammocks up that uh, there's been some notices that have been given out or like copies of the email or something. Well, what's what's been going on with that? Yeah, well, uh, since springs it's getting warmer, so everyone wants to go out and hammock. So uh, MSU is just like cracking down on some hammocking and stuff so they've been sending out papers and flyers of emails which is what our meeting was about to really get a clear definition of what's going on and how we can work to uh, work with them and fix the problems so mm-hmm. we're really working towards fixing it and uh, how how did your members react you know to getting those notices were they slightly outraged i know outraged. yeah <laughs> i know like it's always been a thing that people have been getting in trouble for well not getting in trouble but They've been told to take their hammocks down on campus. It's happened to me before, like I said, in one of our other interviews. But um, specifically when they started handing out letters with ordinances and all the things like that, um, they were just kind of confused because um, the ordinance isn't, it's pretty vague if you read it. Um, I don't know if Matt has it out right now, but um, it's pretty vague. It basically, the gist of it is you can't mutilate any tree, plant, shrubbery, anything like that. Um so when they got this, they're like, I'm not damaging the tree. Like, I have these tree-friendly straps. Why am I getting these notices? Um, so it was very confusing and just, they're like, why Why is? Why am I not allowed to do this? Mm-hmm. So it was just more confusing than, like, angry. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually have the ordinance. I just do you want to read it, it? Yeah, go ahead. You can read part of it. So it says, no person shall break or cut branches or flowers or fruit or otherwise damage or mutilate any tree, shrub, Plant or flower upon property governed by the Board of Trustees, which would be Michigan State Campus. Mm. And so, yeah, no flower picking for us. <laughs> yeah, the, the first part kind of reads like a Dr. Seuss poem or something. <laughs> it's like, no this, no that, no that. Well, uh-huh. eggs and ham for us. Today. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I guess two, two major things have happened recently. You have this petition that you put up, and you also had a meeting earlier today, correct? Correct. Um, so I guess let's... Uh, yeah, let's start with the meeting. So uh, who did you meet with earlier today? Um, we met with about, I believe it was like eight or so officials from landscaping, IPF, um, and a couple other places. We met with the head arborist, Paul Schwartz, um, as well as Frank Tuluski, who is the curator, I believe, on campus for all the trees, um, plus a couple other people here and there that are important to this. Um, plus, we had a couple people from Outdoors Club join us as well. So we had Dan, Luke, um, Lita, and Judson there, too, to kind of back us up and have our point of view as well. Um, but we just kind of sat down and talked about the ordinance, where it was coming from, um, why people were receiving these letters, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So. And uh, so, you know, after you finished discussing at the meeting, what what were the results? What did you come out with? <laughs> Um, so for results, it's nothing really concrete in a way. Uh, we still have to set up follow-up meetings, but we got really far in voicing our opinions mm-hmm. and actually understanding what they were trying to discuss. Because when we got those letters, we were so outraged. We're like, they're anti-hammocking. Yeah, it but was. It was more beneficial and an informational piece for both sides. So now we can work on maybe working towards a compromise in the end of the future. I think before the meeting, there was almost like a cold war between us and landscaping. Like, <laughs> I think everything kind of got lost in translation um, through like emails and letters handed out to people. Like, we didn't like them and they didn't like us. But in reality, they're just doing their job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that this meeting kind of helped like smooth it all out a little bit and be like, we're not anti-hammocking. We're just doing our jobs and trying to protect the trees um, because camp the campus is. Um, it's an arboretum. It's an arboretum, they so we have to protect it. Yeah, they love that word, arboretum. 
Um, so essentially, you just you have to protect all the trees because they're there for teaching and for use and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're just trying to protect the trees for the future and things of that nature. Um, and you were, uh, Matt, you were mentioning some of the, the compromises uh, that they were uh, discussing with you. Um, you know what? Let's say some of those compromises come through. What, what kind of changes could we expect to happen? Um, well, at least on our side for compromising and proposals, we spit out multiple pieces on structures, um, education of hammocking, and basically what it came down to in some of our things were liabilities, safety hazards, general things that as a campus and the environment, you know, they want to protect us. You know, it was one of their main beliefs and during the thing. It's like they care about us. They care about the students. And I think at one point they even said, you can replace a tree, but you can't replace a student. Yeah. So it's they care. So we're working towards some form of compromising. Um, we talked to Paul Schwartz and he was really on board with like educational training towards mm-hmm. hammocking safety, tree safety. And that could branch out to somehow other branch things out. in the future. That's my subtle <laughs> nice pun, pun right there. <laughs> he didn't even plan that. I'm going to no, tell you that right no, now. It worked out. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, great. So we also have... Uh, this petition that was opened yesterday, this oh, I morning? believe it was early this morning. Earlier this morning. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, so the sunrise. Yeah. <laughs> sunrise. So, um, how many? Or I guess what? What was the initial wording of this petition, more or less? Um, it was originally to completely get rid of the ordinance or get rid of the ban of hammocking and slacklining on campus. Um, but we've kind of tweaked it a little bit since then. Um, I mean, like. After coming out of the meeting and listening to what they have to say and actually evaluating our stance, um, removing the ordinance itself was kind of an extremist view. The ordinance was made, I think, in 1965. 1965, Wow. And then it wasn't amended until 1995. So that's a whole gap just to amend a certain part of the ordinance. Mm -hmm. So to completely, like, wipe out one document would take almost... A war. It would take a long time. <laughs> so we're not about to have a war on campus. Sure. And uh, how uh, how many signatures do you have on the petition? Um, currently, we have 438, which is wow. a lot more than we anticipated. <laughs> so yeah. The comments are amazing, and the love of MSU's campus and nature and hammocking just shows how much and how dedicated we are. Mm-hmm. Which is really great. I know I shared it on Facebook, and people are like texting me and messaging me, and they're like, "Wait, this isn't allowed! Like, what is going on?" And like, people I haven't talked to in years have been like, "That's kind of ridiculous. Um, like, that's that's not cool. Like, it's just hammocking." Yeah. Um, people are blowing up our phones all day. <laughs> I don't think I've had a chance a... to like go to the bathroom without my phone vibrating. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, now that being said, finals week is coming up. Mm-hmm. So I imagine you're going to roll out the hammocks anyways to relax a little, you know, get those study breaks in, or you're just not going to take the risk? I mean, we'll definitely relax outside. As for hammocking... Uh, I'm going to try and hammock as much as possible. I'm not sure about on campus, but um, I'm definitely going to bring it out because that's my favorite way in the world to relax. Mm-hmm. Um I have seven exams in two weeks, so Ooh. I'm going to need some relaxation <laughs> time. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's too soon to tell. Yeah. We don't want to piss anyone off, but we just (laughs) essentially gave an olive branch. Yeah. We waved our white flag, hoping Mm -hmm. for some kind of compromise when you don't want to stain that. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, how are your, I know earlier we talked about, um, you know, your members on your Facebook page, but how are they reacting to the, the news? of earlier today have you broken it to them yet or is this we actually just got out of the meeting about an hour ago and we breaking news we we, um so we got out and we just kind of sat down and kind of regrouped because then we didn't really get to like chat with me and matt and i myself didn't get to chat during the meeting so we kind of just like regrouped made sure we were all we were both on the same page um so no we haven't we wouldn't lie if we didn't say it wasn't overwhelming to be there. It was very overwhelming. Sure. <laughs> the huh. meeting was very overwhelming. We had to like regroup our thoughts, and literally, you were the first person we told our news to. So. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, made me a little fuzzy inside. Was... <laughs> <laughs> right, right here in exposure, break, breaking hammocking news. Um, so that was all I had for you today. I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to plug while you're here. Of course, uh, anyone that might be interested in joining the hammocking club, where where can they go? We actually have a meeting tomorrow if anybody is interested. 
Um, it's going to be in A124 Wells Hall at 7 p.m. if you're interested in coming. Um, we'd love to see you there. If you have any questions, if you want to know more about any information, petition, what, what happened, um, you can always get a hold of us. We'll mm -hmm. always be open. Great. Well, this has uh, been Matt Shalino and Marissa Trupiano here from the Hammock and Club of MSU. And uh, breaking news, of course. Always exciting <laughs> here on Impact Exposure. And uh, <laughs> thank you for coming in today. Thank you no for problem. having us again. You can follow us on Twitter at Impact underscore Exposure to keep up to date with all the features and news pieces that we put out here on the show. Up next, we've got a feature from Impact reporter Brittany Flowers going into an inside look on the East Lansing rap scene. With the talk and excitement of an upcoming concert next Tuesday featuring rising music artist Chance the Rapper, several friends of mine have asked me if I was going. I hadn't really planned on attending, but the people who are fans of Chance seem so enthusiastic about the concert. I don't really know much about rap music or its origins, so I've never been a huge fan of the genre, but with the amount of talk that has circulated about Chance at MSU, I got to thinking about what exactly it is that makes people so passionate about rap in general. I decided that I wanted to dig a little deeper and find out what leads people to get started in this particular industry and what it's like to try and get there. I interviewed two local artists from right here at MSU to see just what they had to say about it. So, how long have you been rapping? I have been rapping since I was 12. My friend Al Wu used to rap. He was on a couple songs on my mixtape, and he just used to blow me away about how sweet he was. And ever since then, I just wanted to try. Because you said on your Instagram it says, my mom bought me a mic, and I went from there. Is that true? Yeah, what happened was she bought me a microphone, like a little little play one. And I used to just rap in the mirror sometime. And then I'll go to school and see Al Woo and he'll rap. And I was like, dang, that's kind of sweet. What if I like tried it? And, you know, that's how I started. If you could compare yourself with any rapper, who would it be? I don't really like comparing myself <laughs> because like that's so hard. Because when you compare yourself, it's like boxing yourself in. I listen to so much rap, man. It's like <laughs> I think anything that just sounds good for the most part inspires me. How far are you hoping to take your rap career? As far as the rap career goes, I just like really just like doing music for the most part. Of course, you want to take it far, mm -hmm. but if circumstances don't allow you to, you can't really just be mad, you know? I just have to let it think, let things be. What are some of your favorite topics to rap about? Pretty much college, of course. Mm -hmm. This is great. Michigan State is the best school ever, bro. I pretty much like to rap about having fun, really. I don't have restrictions when it comes to writing. I just like to do what I feel. That was MSU freshman Ant Genius, and upon request by me, Ant agreed to a post-interview freestyle. So here you go. Joe told me never bite the hand that feeds you. Rip that mug off that they ever mistreat you. Never let the universe deceive you. Do it for the people. Stay away from evil. Try to do it right. Never braggadocious. They say I'm losing focus because I'm caught up in that gloating. They say popping pills and losing all that potion. Jalen and Eric told me to chill with the commotion. I'm just boiling on these boys who was doubting me. Circle full of squares, the only thing surrounding me. Had to make some moves, they were acting cowardly. Studying art, ever so empowering. But dang, they don't even want to know what I go through in this lab. And they just talking beef till I serve them all a slab. I ain't really tripping, I'm just focused on my task. The world is in my hands, gotta keep it in my grasp. That's all I got for y'all. Next, I sat down with MSU student Kenny Green. What's good? How long have you been rapping? I'm an artist, but I've been uh, into music for about eight years. What makes you consider yourself an artist as opposed to, like, a rapper? Um, I would say that I like to be familiar with myself, and I like to separate myself from the whole. It's a, it's a hustle. You got to push it yourself. You got to make what you want out of it. You really got to be your own voice and build it. Because, like, the market, the game is so oversaturated that when you go up to someone and say, you rap, People already look down at it. You know what I mean? It's like it has it has a negative connotation with it. So I think, uh, well, it's stigmatized in this country. So I think that by like creating your own sound, pushing it, and showing people that you're different, that you're not your ordinary uh, rap artist, that it definitely uh, has a different portrayal. How far are you hoping to take your career, or how far are you hoping it'll go? Um, school is first. That's what my mom's always told me. So I think I'm gonna stick with school and like just continue what I'm doing. Like just. The music thing is not, you know, a job. It's not a hobby. It's a hustle for me right now. I love doing it. But when you're trying to do it at the same time as school, it becomes very hard. But you know you should keep going. And by quitting, it would just make you unhappy. 
But uh, school's first, so let's get that degree. What types of places do you perform, or where do you perform most? For the most part, uh, I'm from Philadelphia, so a lot of the venues that I perform at are usually, I, I've, I've been an opener my whole life, so I haven't been able to find myself. I just had my first headlining act uh, at Max Bar in Lansing, uh, Michigan. I've never gotten into rap much myself, but I've always been interested in it. And on the subject of local vibes, I decided to see what these two artists thought about the local rap scene. Um, the East Lansing area, there's not that many venues that I see that play live music. What would you say <clears throat> about the local rap scene? Very, uh, th- there isn't much. Uh, if there is, it's not very wanted. Like, a lot of people don't seem like they're supporting, like, you know, hip-hop, rap, like, want it. You got to push it yourself. You got to make what you want out of it. You really got to be your own voice and build it. Have you performed anywhere else in the Lansing area besides Max Bar? Just the loft and Max Bar. What were those places like for you? It was live, definitely live. The venues were live. The atmosphere outside the venues are very dead. And they're very, um, very Lansing, very dull. Well, there you have it. No, I'm just kidding with you. I'm not going to end quite there. While some cities may have less than ideal performance scenes and opportunities, that doesn't mean that they're completely dead. I mean, the energy is always created by the performer, but when you bring in that energy from the outside to the inside, it transmits like a different vibe. The push for live performances from local artists may not always be there, and though members of particular communities may be ambivalent towards rap in general, aspiring artists like Ant and Kenny, and even commercially known artists like Chance the Rapper, have the ability to change that. At times, rap can bring a negative connotation with it, which is why many cities and communities may not have much to offer in terms of performance and overall enthusiasm towards the music genre. But when artists like Chance, who is known for bringing positive energy from Chicago, come to those areas, they can change an entire community's perspective. So, to all you aspiring artists out there, it's people like you who hold the ability to change an entire industry. You can follow us on Twitter at Impact underscore Exposure. You can join the conversation and uh, keep up to date with all the features, interviews, and all the great stuff that we put out here for the show. Up next, we uh, sit down with Lori Summers. She's a curator uh, for Michigan Folk Song Legacy, Discoveries from the Great Dis- uh, Depression, rather, uh, an exhibit now at the MSU Museum through October 18th about Michigan's rich history in folk music. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rizel, and I'm uh, here today with Lori Summers. And how are you today, Lori? I'm doing just well. And uh, let's just uh, start off with an introduction about yourself and uh, what you do with the Michigan Folk Song Legacy Exhibit. Well, the Michigan Folk Song Legacy Exhibit was a two-year project with funding primarily from the Michigan Humanities Council. And I, my background is as a folklorist. I specialize in music, especially traditional music in Michigan. So this particular project deals with a very important historic folk music collection collected by the great American folklorist Alan Lomax in 1938. And so we did a series of things, including creating a, a traveling exhibition that focused on Lomax's accomplishments and his recordings in the places that he went, trying to address it by different themes. And that exhibit is a series of 10 uh, pull-up vinyl banners where you can also listen to the music through QR codes. And that's now been to seven different locations across Michigan, primarily places where Lomax himself originally collected. And now it's come back to the MSU Museum, and it'll be there until October 18th this fall. And uh, and you're mentioning uh, Alan Lomax. So what, I guess, kind of uh, expand a little bit on, I guess, his involvement with this initial project. Right. Alan Lomax was really one of the great American folklorists of the 20th century. He died in the early 2000s. He was born in 1915, so we're celebrating his centennial this year. He might be known to people who would listen to your program more by the people that he collected from. He was the first to collect from um, the great Woody Guthrie. He collected from a number of uh, well-known classic blues musicians, Muddy Waters, Lead Belly, Sun House. Um, But before he did all that, he was also collecting across the United States, gathering roots music. I mean, the the roots of a lot of the music that we listen to today. I mean, if... um, and bringing these artists to wider exposure. He was uh, a folklorist. 
who was born into a very famous folk music collecting family. His father, John Lomax, was a folklorist and collector. He started out and recorded and collected rather um, cowboy songs in 1910 and wrote a book about it. But when Alan was a young man, he went with his father across the American South collecting um, blues and ballads and Cajun music and various other forms of roots music. But in 1938, when he was just 23, his father was then um, at the Library of Congress where they had what was then called the Archive of Folk Song. It's now called the American Folklife Center. It's still there on another name. And during the 1930s, they were interested in collecting folk music from everyday uh, Americans across the United States, across social class, across ethnic group, um, to build the collection of the American Folklife, well, what's now uh, the American Folklife Center, then the Archive of Folk Song, as part of the effort to create a distinctively American culture. You know, in the 30s, we were in the Depression, everyone was patriotic. So uh, they'd never yet been to uh, Michigan, what Lomax called the Lake States. So in 1938, he planned this trip to collect in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. But he found so much great stuff. He had 10 weeks, so much great stuff in Michigan that he never made it to Minnesota at all, and he only made one collecting trip in uh, stop in Wisconsin. So he went from Detroit um, up across uh, the Straits and uh, across the UP for 10 weeks collecting... Um, a vast number of really terrific uh, songs and instrumental pieces um, from a whole range of ethnic groups and uh, different individuals at that time. And so this project was celebrating the 75th anniversary of um, that trip in 1938. And it was a collaboration between the MSU Museum and the uh, Library of Congress. And uh, when Alan was... um you know, going out and collecting these recordings, were the musicians more of just uh, amateur musicians? Were there some professionals? Were they right. more of local legends? Or what What was kind of, I guess, the, the, the groups of people that he recorded? He was interested in the music of everyday Americans, as he would have called it. So these weren't necessarily professionals. They might have been musicians who were playing for uh, a community dance in the Upper Peninsula, they would have been family groups that might have been performing for themselves. They might have been people that performed for uh, weddings and you know local events of that sort. Or they could have been people that just you know sang ballads and songs for their own entertainment. Uh, there were several different groups of uh, musicians in terms of the types of uh, repertoire of songs that they represented. I mean, one, I guess you might... These would have been, I suppose, less professional, but there were um, some blues musicians in Detroit that had emigrated up from the South that he recorded that would have been, you know, trying to make their living um, as blues musicians. But then another big group that he collected were from uh, lumberjacks. Uh, he was really interested in ballads. Ballads are songs that tell a story. And at that time, those these would have been ballads that were primarily passed on um, from person to person by listening and um, they were carried on in particular occupations. So Michigan has a great history of lumbering and logging. So in the camps after dinner or on the day off, this was predominantly men, they would get together and they had to entertain themselves. So they would sing songs. And a number of these songs were about the occupation. Um, and one of these songs you should have a clip of, it's um, Once More a Lumbering Go by Carl Lathrop. And I particularly like it because Lathrop was a former lumberjack at this time. By 1930s, you know, the great logging era in Michigan was basically gone, and these men were talking about um, songs that they had maybe sung in their, you know, as young men, maybe as much as 50 years ago. And he at 80 has this terrific voice, and he's singing a song that kind of goes through the cycle of the calendar year of working as a lumberjack in Michigan. Uh, and uh, I particularly like that one. Come all your sons of freedom and listen to my theme. Come all your roving lumberjacks that run the Saginaw stream. We'll cross the Tidibiwati where the mighty waters flow. And 
Um, there was another great group of ballads that he collected that he called um, with the songs of the Great Lakes Sailors. And this was when, you know, now you'll see freighters if you go along, you know, crossing the Straits of Mackinac and, uh, across the Great Lakes. At that time, it was sailing ships, and they were carrying grain and lumber. And, um, and there was a lot of time that you would spend on deck or on shore to having to entertain yourself. And there were ballads and songs about this as well. And so um, one of the clips that you have is the Gallagher Boys, uh, another favorite of mine that was about an actual... Um, shipwreck that took place between Traverse City, Michigan, and and Beaver Island. And um, the man who sung it um, actually remembered the people who were involved in it. So he told Alan Lomax a story about that. I went into bigger vessels, and they was grainers, and they was iron ore vessels, see, and grainers. So we stay, I sailed in a grainer from Chicago to Buffalo three straight seasons in one vessel. And that was her name was a Guido Fister. What's your good boat? A big three-mast schooner. She carried six to seven thousand bushels of corn. A grain. So these are the kinds of things that he collected. Songs of occupation, songs of ethnic groups, songs of occasions and rites of passage, but not really professional musicians. He, he would have, uh, as a folklorist myself, were interested in the culture and the traditions of everyday life and ordinary people. And um, I think that's what makes us who we are, and that's an essential part of our culture, and that's what he collected, and that's what the exhibit is about. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, just a couple uh, moments ago, you mentioned uh, a beaver island. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that that kind of has a role in the the story, too. Is that tied in with with Alan Lomax? It is, um, because Lomax was particularly interested in ballads. And I I should say a lot of the material that... um, he collected was of ethnic groups who recorded and sung in languages other than English. But these ballads of the lumberjacks and of the sailors were in English. And at the time in the 30s, people were really interested in ballads. So this was a real focus of Lomax in this uh, quest across Michigan. And he worked with a um, folklorist from the University of Michigan, whose name was Ivan Walton, who was really interested in what he called the songs of the schoonermen. This was the he still has the best collection of folklore about the Great Lakes and about songs that were composed by the men who worked on the Great Lakes, again, during the age of sailing ships. So Ivan Walton took Lomax up to Beaver Island um, because he knew all these great ballad singers up there. Many of them were Irish. There were a lot of Irish um, sailors on the lakes, and Beaver Island was a uh, Irish enclave. It was settled by Irish immigrants in the 19th century. So a lot of the ballad material and most of the Irish material that Lomax has in his collection was recorded on uh, Beaver Island. One of the clips um, that I brought with me is um, from this great fiddler from Beaver Island named Pat Bonner, who uh, plays an Irish uh, jig. Um, And uh, this was something that Lomax recorded when he was on the island as well. Just have a, one more question for you today to wrap things up. Um, now, what was I know you mentioned that you worked with the Library of Congress yes. also in uh, creating this exhibit. So, I guess what was kind of uh, I guess your favorite part of the the process in uh, getting this exhibit at the MSU Museum? Well, as someone who's a native of Michigan, I was thrilled that this project even happened because this material has been sitting in the Library of Congress in an archive for seventy five years in. You know, you could access this if you went there, but now they've put it online so it's accessible to anybody. Um, but we were kind of launching the um, the whole project and reintroducing Lomax's um, material back to the communities where he recorded. And that's what I liked the best because in all the different places we went, and these were small communities. I mean, I recently got a, an email from a woman that said, you know, why didn't you go to Grand Rapids? That's where a lot of people are. And he didn't collect in Grand Rapids. He went 
to small places, especially in the Upper Peninsula. And everywhere we went, there was somebody who had some connection to someone that Alan Lomax recorded in 1938. It would be some kind of descendant. And it was just really thrilling to meet those people and, and have them there and, and, and reintroduce this material to a whole new uh, generation of people. Um, because it is really a, a part of who we are as a state. It's a part of our great history. It's a part of all the different ethnic groups. And, and what Lomax discovered and what's still happening today is that all the different people who came here, you know, their different traditions kind of intermingled. They cross-fertilized, and we created a whole new kind of ethnic music and a whole new set of uh, folk music here in Michigan, and that process is going on today, and the MSC Museum is carrying on that kind of work, and I think that's very exciting. Well, great. This has been uh, Lori Summers here uh, curating the Michigan Folk Song Legacy exhibit over at the MSU Museum, running until October 18th of this year, correct? And uh, all the sound recordings that you heard today are courtesy of the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress. And uh, again, Lori, thank you for coming in today. My pleasure. You can find us on Twitter at impact underscore exposure, where you can join in on the conversation and keep up to date with everything that we put out for this news program. Up next, we have a feature on alternative Michigan State spring breaks done by impact reporter Kim Alchatel. Every year, college students want to escape the cold and head south for a week full of sun, partying, and nonstop drinking. It's called spring break. Students from all over the country bombard cities and take over the beaches for a week. It might be Mexico, Florida, or a foreign Caribbean country. The destinations may change, but the activities vary very little. But recently a fad has started in which some students choose to stray away from the cliche spring break week and choose to instead engage in trips that involve volunteering or broadening their horizons. Here at MSU, we have Alternative Spartan Break, which offers 18 different spring break trips and three different winter trips. The trips range from HIV and AIDS advocacy, renewable energy issues, to immersing yourself in Native American culture in South Dakota. No matter what your interest, you can probably find something that fits you perfectly, which may be why so many students are recently turning away from the typical spring break escapades. I recently sat down with Jocelyn Roberts, a senior here at MSU who was in charge of the trip heading down to Alabama with the group focused on advocating and educating about the prevention of HIV and AIDS. Do you know exactly what you will be doing on this trip? Um, we just get kind of a brief list. Um, we'll be doing a lot of what they do is housing for people who have HIV or AIDS. Um, so they provide the housing so they have a stable place to live. So we might be working on cleaning up the housing, both inside and outside. Um, but then on Thursday, when we're down there, is an AIDS awareness day in Alabama. So we'll be doing a march on the Capitol and going to Montgomery and with that group and a bunch of other groups and kind of spreading awareness about that. She's previously been on an HIV and AIDS trip to New York and had an experience that made her want to come back to Alternative Spartan Break. Last year I went to New York and worked with the Gay Men's Health Crisis. Uh, that was pretty cool because I guess um, you kind of think of HIV and AIDS as kind of a thing of the past and that it was a big deal and then now we people just kind of forget about it and don't really think that it's a big problem around in the U.S. There's a lot of stigma associated with it and a lot of people don't really know that much about it and so they don't know how to protect themselves from it because they'd rather just not talk about it. So I guess that's been the most interesting thing that I've learned so far in last year was just how much awareness still needs to be spread about it. What are you most excited about for this upcoming trip? I'm really excited for the march on the Capitol. I think um, a lot of times when we go and work with organizations you just get their one perspective. You work with that organization, you see how they're Looking at things, um, GMHC that was in New York were very much prevention-based. AIDS Alabama yeah. is much more housing-based. Every organization kind of has how they want to deal and help people. So I'm excited to go to the march and have all the organizations and all the people all together and just have a big event. 
junior year at Michigan State, Maya DeVogue, was part of the trip that explored the idea of indigenous rights by living on the reservation that the Lakota and Dakota people populate. We're going to do a lot of volunteer work for the beginning half of the day, and we're going to do like childcare and um, handle some funds, paint a mural, and do some construction. And then later in the day, we are going to have like a guest speaker come and uh, have some dialogue with us so we can learn about the struggles that they're going through right now. For her first trip with Alternative Spartan Break, Maya has certain expectations. I know I'm going to learn a ton about the ways of life on a um, daily basis of someone who lives on a reservation in America and hopefully understand ways that we can help lift Native Americans out of poverty and out of all the problems that they're having right now. I know they have like low education level and they have medical problems. I want to learn about that so I can bring awareness to it, but then also have a better understanding for indigenous people in general. Both girls returned from their trips and had thoughts on their excursions. Well, overall, I pretty much just learned what a real reservation is like in America. You have this idea in your head before you go there of what it's like, and then you get there and it's totally different. There's actually, they're kind of struggling on reservations in most of them with poverty and with things like suicides and education and sort of stuff. So it was really eye-opening to see how they struggle, but also how some people make the best of it and are still really happy while they're living there. Did you miss at all the uh, cliche college spring break? I didn't miss it at all. We we did get to get a little tan because of the sun, but uh, it was just, we ended up having a great group of people who were all really passionate and fun. And so it was like we were having fun the whole time. Even when we were volunteering at, like, say, the thrift shop, we were still having a ton of fun. Many people have these perceptions on what they should do for their college spring breaks. They should be on the beach and getting tan. But there are so many different alternatives to choose from. Spring break is something unique to when you're in school. When you're a big kid in the workforce, you'll maybe get some vacation time. But it might not be guaranteed. For Impact News, I'm Kim L. Chattel. We have a Twitter at Impact underscore Exposure where you can follow for all of the fantastic stuff that we put out for this show every week, every Tuesday, 7 to 8 p.m. here on Impact 89 FM. Up next, we go with my interview, and I called uh, Kate Flower, the director of the official yet somewhat unofficial Bob Dylan Fan Club. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rizal, and I'm on the phone today with Kate Flower, uh, director over at the Bob Dylan Fan Club. How are you today, Kate? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Thanks for calling in today. Sure. And uh, so let's just uh, start off with a little bit of an introduction about yourself. Well, I'm a mid-30 gal living in Ohio, born and raised, and I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. Um, had the opportunity to see him close to 300 times. 300 times? So, <laughs> yes. Well, when was the first time you saw him? First time I saw him was in 1997 in L.A. Okay. Wow, 300 times. That is, <laughs> that's incredible. Um, <laughs> so, so how long has this, this club been around? It was established in 2005 after we had a meeting with Bob. Um, that kind of happened as all the important things in your own life happen, it seems, without any kind of prior notification, someone just came out and said, hey, Bob wants to talk to you. Just listen to what he has to say. So we did that. And he said he'd never had a fan club, and he wondered if we wanted to start one for him. So we said we'd do our best. And what, what what was your uh, initial reaction when this happened? Were you kind of in disbelief, or what What were you feeling at the time? Um, yeah, pretty much disbelief. Just thinking, okay, you know, of all the things I thought Bob Dylan would say to me in my life, asking for a fan club was really not something <laughs> I ever thought would be <laughs> that thing. But... There it was. We didn't really, you know, have any anything else to say other than okay, mm-hmm. try. And uh, did you ever happen to run into him again after that? 
Not after that. I'd run into him a couple of times previous to that mm-hmm. randomly, but since then, not at all. Okay. So now I I understood from your website that there's a, a difference between the official Bob Dylan fan club and then just your Bob Dylan fan club. But what what you know marks that official seal on it? Well, um, I guess you know it's not part of his website or anything. We are approved through his music company, Special Writer Music, but we're not a part of BobDylan.com. We're our own entity to kind of do what we want. And we like to really focus on the now, Bob. There's plenty of organizations and websites that are focused on what did Bob do in the 60s and before, but... Our experiences have always been with what is Bob doing now and seeing his live shows. So that's kind of the difference between our fan club and a lot of other quote-unquote fan clubs. Mm -hmm. What do you think distinguishes, I guess, Bob Dylan fan clubs in general apart from other artists' fan clubs? I don't know. Maybe... Uh, a lot of analyzing. <laughs> People really seem to want to analyze what Bob's doing and what he has done. And I think Caroline, my co-director, and I are in agreement that you can't predict what Bob's going to do. And that's what something that's really exciting about going to see him. You don't really know what the next thing is going to be that happens or what the next album is going to be like or anything he just is very unpredictable so it's always something new and exciting mm-hmm. and uh how, how many members are, are part of the club oh geez well on our facebook page which has a lot of action as facebook groups will i think we're at ten thousand, maybe wow something around that um and then we have our actual website that we have forums and stuff on and that's several hundred mm-hmm and uh, how is there a way for someone to become a member officially, or is it just kind of a you know welcome everyone kind of club? We ask that people fill out answers to a few questions about their experiences with Bob and seeing him live and things that they really like about him. And you can find that at thebobdylanfanclub.com on the how to join link. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you know what what do you do to connect the fans with each other? Is there kind of like discussion that goes on between them out like because I know you mentioned the the Facebook group so how do how do the Dylan fans connect with each other in in your club Yeah, a lot of discussion. We have forums um on our site, our main site and then a lot of different discussions and commenting on pictures and that kind of thing on the Facebook page. And then we try to do meetups at the shows we're going to be at, at least a few of them. So we can get together and talk in person. So what, you know, how, how do you get the word out to people? Is there a promotion that's involved? Is it really just word of mouth? And how, how do people first hear about the club? Um, word of mouth. We made an announcement when we first started our very first website, kind of on some of the other big sites like Expecting Rain, and just said we were doing it and told our story, which was kind of difficult, you know, it's, like, okay, well, hello, everybody. We met Bob this one day, and he said he wanted a fan club. But, <laughs> you know, that's kind of just the way it went down, so mm-hmm. I don't know how else we could have said it. Uh-huh. And since then, it's been word of mouth, but we have stickers and T-shirts and buttons and that kind of thing that usually we try to give to people that are going to shows or we have them for sale on our site, too, to kind of offset the cost of keeping the site going mm-hmm. and uh now are there i i know there's some like prize giveaways that you also do with the the fan club members how, how do those work those yeah we do those through email we do at least one a tour usually more than that and you just need to be signed up at our regular website thebobdylanfanclub.com and then you get on the email list and we send them out we'll just do some kind of tour related question and then we pick a winner at the end if there's more than one or send the gift out to whoever 
but we get a lot of donations from people that are writing books about Bob or, you know, anything Bob related Mm. people will send to us so we can give them away to people, which we're happy to do. Sure. And uh, now I only have one more question for you today. And uh, that, that is, What's your favorite album by Bob? I, you know, I've, I've got to know someone who's you know met Bob and is now running this this fan club. You know, what, what's your favorite album? My favorite album is New Morning. New Morning. And I I love it because Bob plays piano on it, and I think he is one of the greatest piano players of all time. And the songs are all very sincere and sweet. I like That's it. My number one favorite, but the other. My other two favorites are Planet Waves and Street Legal, which are totally different feeling albums. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would I would have to agree with you on uh, with a, a New Morning there. That's a good album. Day of the Locusts, yeah. probably one of my favorites right there. Yeah, it's a good one. Sigh on the Window, that's always my favorite. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Kate Flower, thanks for speaking with me today. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, well, have a great day now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. You can follow us on Twitter at Impact underscore exposure up next we have our final piece for the night a uh, sort of michigan storytellers if we uh, if you will we've got a senior retrospective piece from our station manager here gabriella saldivia and uh, when i was first conducting the interview rather than being right in front of her i uh, fed her questions through headphones so it was all just her talking that you know ended up on the recording so i went through and uh you know i restructured it in a way to where it, it kind of sounded like a story and uh I'm, my my goal here is that for you listening at home, you kind of guess what I'm asking her and you kind of snoop in on our conversation and try to figure out what I'm asking her as she relives her memories here at The Impact. Hello, my name is Gabriella Saldivia and I am the station manager here at Impact 89FM. So I accepted an internship at NPR in Washington, D.C. and I'll be working on Morning Edition this summer. I'm hoping to continue to work in radio, whether that is at NPR or maybe somewhere else. And um, yeah, just do what I love and do what I'm passionate about. Um, I feel like it's a dream come true that I landed this gig and I can't wait to start. One that really sticks out, I think maybe because I'm sitting in the same spot that I was when it happened, was um, we were putting together the newscast back when I was the news director. And it was a summer or a spring day, kind of like it is right now outside, and people were playing in the back behind um, Holden, playing volleyball and basketball and all that stuff. And um, I was just sitting with my back to the window, and from the outside, it doesn't look like a window. It looks like a blacked-out area, but it really you can see through it. And there was this man that came up, and he started peeing on the corner of the window, and um, all of a sudden, everyone around me was like, mouth open, jaw dropped, like gasping, like laughing, like couldn't stop pointing. And like we were, we were, I turned around and just like saw him and saw everything. And he had no idea. We were all just sitting here laughing at him and he peed for like a good 30 seconds to a minute. And I will always remember that as just like one of the funniest things that has ever happened while I've been here. Well, I think it's interesting because it's not just one moment that makes that happen. The like sustained relationship, the feeling of support and trust that comes with the relationships that I've built here at The Impact. I don't know if I can pinpoint one moment. It's more like the very, the culmination of the moment. So, um, you know, staying here late at night to work on stuff back when I was the news director um, and there was people always around. And so just like sharing time with them and sharing experiences and going through funny things and going through hard things. And so it's like all of those things add up and then you realize that these people are really like the glue that held together your college experience. And I think it's interesting because the impact is such a transitionary place. Like people come and go and, you know, they graduate and it's hard because you continue being um, at the impact and then uh, your friends leave. Uh, but I think that's also really special because you get to share like a very temporary time with them. And it's like a very defining time in a lot of people's lives as well. Um, so I don't know. I think it's like having those, um, those conversations all the time, they build up to be a stronger feeling, but I have made some of my best friends and I'm also dating someone that I met here at the impact. So this place is probably like the defining part of my college career in a lot of ways. (laughs) Sure. Um, 
So I met my boyfriend here as well. His name is Colin Marshall. He graduated last year. Um, when I first started, I was a news team volunteer uh, straight out of the first day of my freshman year. I found out about the impact at the colloquium in the Arts and Sciences um, College and um, decided to volunteer. And I used to only come in on like Thursday nights, I think, and I would be here from like 7 to you know, 10 p.m. working on the newscast. And it was like the brand new start of the news team. So I wasn't doing like a ton. I wasn't super involved. Um, and the impact was very different when I was a freshman. It wasn't like it is now. Um, there was a small director staff. Directors weren't really involved with other teams. Um, people didn't collaborate as much. And so I kind of was like in my little little bubble. And I didn't really realize everything else that went on at the station, to be honest. Um, but as I got more involved as the year went on, I started to meet more people and started to get to know the directors. And Colin was a director. He was the video director. And I remember like maybe later in my experience, maybe my sophomore year or something, like seeing him around the station and just like thinking he was really talented and really cool. Um, he did videos on like Ozzy Osbourne's tour and all those things that make made him like on a pedestal kind of. Um, but I don't ever remember like having a crush on him or anything like maybe I thought he was cute but I wasn't like really interested and then um the spring of my sophomore year I started to get a lot more I started I was a director and I started to get closer with the people that were also on the director staff and so as that happens you hang out after work and you do things and we started get having a friendship but he was actually dating someone else at the time someone else that worked at the station and um Kind of so I never like thought of him as a romantic interest, but we started to get to know each other better uh, like that. And then I went away for the summer to study abroad and came back and um, he had broken up with his girlfriend and uh, we just started hanging out more just as friends, but more frequently. And we we're working together a bunch and collaborating on projects at the impact. Um, I went I needed someone to shoot photography for the drag show that I was covering for um, the news team. So I contacted him and asked him if he would come and um, take some photos. And so that was our first time that we really like collaborated on a work thing um, that semester. This was like in early August or late August. I'm sorry. And um, we just like got to talking about all these different things that uh, we had in common. And then after that, it's just kind of it was you know, it just happened that we were spending a lot of time together and um, grew to have, like, more romantic feelings for each other. So it's not a super, like, exciting story, but it was, like, a slow um, progression. And I think that's probably why we've lasted a while is because we are friends, like, first, and we have, like, a, some rich history. I'm going to miss the people the most, um, especially Ed. He's been someone that I've grown to get to know um super well in the last year especially but before that and he's like been the best boss um, I couldn't imagine a better boss to have and to learn from I think um, Shelby actually mentioned this and I don't know if she said it in her interview as well but she's made a really good point that was like I don't feel as comfortable in my own skin anywhere else as I do at the impact and I I totally feel that way as well it's like this place has been such a common thread in my college experience that it's almost second nature. You know, you move every year. You move from the dorm to the apartment to the house to a different house, and those are always, like, your transitionary periods, but the impact has, like, always felt like home to me. And um, I think, like, every time I walk down the stairs in Holden, I get, like, excited to turn the corner and go to the impact, and it's, I'm going to be really sad when I don't have that anymore. And I, I know it's going to feel different coming back after I don't work here anymore as well. Like, I, I plan to visit and I plan to come back, but I know that that feeling of this place being, like, home won't exist anymore because it's it won't be mine, which is okay because other people need to experience it, too, and have it feel like theirs, but that's been, like, consistent, and I will really miss feeling comfortable here. And I know I'm going to really miss it when I leave because it, no, I don't think any place will ever feel like this, like the impact has to me. Yeah, thank you, too. I didn't cry, but, I, you know, I'm getting a little emotional. Gabriella Saldivia right there, our station manager here at Impact 89FM. Now, looking back on her years here at Impact 89FM, all episodes of Exposure can be found online at impact89fm.org. We also have our Twitter at impact underscore exposure. Special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Gabriella Saldivia, and our producer, Quinn Hoffman. 
You've been listening to Exposure, Michigan State student-run news program with your host, Daniel Rizal. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.